0: Dear Gracious Father, we come before you again. We thank you for today. We thank you for just a day that we can set aside to be very thankful for our fathers and, and especially thankful for very godly men that you've brought into our life who are father figures and for godly fathers. We know that you, you are the ultimate father. You are the great example of what does it mean to be a father. So ultimately today we are worshiping and honoring and glorifying you we just ask that as we spend time in your word and think about the things that are found here in the book of proverbs that your spirit would be moving in our hearts working in our hearts that you would be exposing sin and that you would be revealing to us the truth of your word that you would be revealing to us how we are to live like your son jesus christ we thank you and love you and just ask your blessings on this time in your son's name Amen. I'm sure we all are familiar with the power of words. We can all say things that are very hurtful to one another. We all have said things that are hurtful to one another. And those words which we think don't really hurt someone else actually do have meaning and implication in people's lives. With these same words, if you think about it, with my same the same words that I use in my same tongue, I can on the one hand sing praises to God, I could talk about his great grace, his mercy, his love, I could talk about his forgiveness, his forgiveness towards me, and then turn around and say something mean, derogatory, and degrading towards my brother. With the same tongue I can de escalate a situation that's really tense, or I can make it even worse right? I can make wisdom of God seem more valuable, or I can speak in such a way that people don't want anything to do with the wisdom of God. Our our tongues can do a lot. We we think of them as being insignificant, but they're not, and our words have great power. I remember when I was a kid, we used to sing that song about uh, be careful little mouths, what you say, right? You remember that one? Uh, and remember, because our Father up above is looking down with love, so be careful, little mouths, what you say. This morning, the proverb we're going to be looking at in Proverbs 15, verses 1 through 3, kind of echoes that same sentiment. However, this is not a, a verse to be looked at like uh, like just clean up the way you talk. There's a lot more here uh, when we talk about someone's speech and someone's speech pattern and when we talk about speaking wisely. And so this morning we're going to talk about speaking wisely. And speaking wisely is saying the right thing at the right time with the right attitude, with the right spirit. That's That's what wise speech looks like. And so in the first two verses, we're going to look at wise speech. Now, we're going to continue to talk about wise speech next week but in the middle of this section, as I was studying, I found verse 3. And in verse 3, there's this incredible statement about the character of God in the midst of speech. And so we're going to talk about this. We need to be careful what we say. So let's go ahead and let's go to Proverbs 15. And just notice in verse 1 what Solomon says. He says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now this word for gentle, a gentle answer, is something that is tender, it's a mild response, it's a response that's filled with love, it's a response that is thought out, it's a response that is controlled. It's it's a controlled thing. When we were studying the book of Galatians, we learned that self-control is a product of the Holy Spirit upon the life of a believer. As much as I wish that I could just stop saying mean things right now. I wish I could do that. I can't. It's something that the Holy Spirit has to be doing in my life through the power of Christ. And because of the work of the Spirit, I can have self-control. And this is a, this answer, a gentle answer, is an answer that is under the control of the Spirit. It's an answer that is yielding to the Spirit. It's an answer that is trying to be like Christ. It's, it's speaking the truth in love. That's, that's how we could say this a gentle answer is speaking the truth in love. So a gentle answer by the way by using the word answer it it kind of kind of puts us in the midst of a scenario where there's things are a little tense and somebody says something and you give an answer to that thing like in the midst of a debate and so the the idea is all right the, the situation's already tense so you're giving a gentle answer and the principle is if you give a gentle answer it Turns this conversation, it, it turns away wrath. The word here for wrath, once again, is, is the idea of heat, uh, of, of, of strong, burning anger. That's the idea. So a, a gentle answer, an answer that's under the control of the Holy Spirit, an answer that is filled with truth and love, said in the right way, with the right words, with the right attitudes, in the right ...with the right motivation... ...will de-escalate a situation. However, notice the opposite. A harsh word... ...stirs up anger. So here the harsh word... uh, ...literally means something that's blunt... ...like a cudgel. So a harsh word is like a cudgel. It, It doesn't slow down a situation. In fact, a harsh word that's brutal... Uh, that's blunt. That says it like it is, without any thought of repercussion of the words actually said. That type of attitude and that type of speech does not de-escalate a situation, but rather adds fuel to the fire. Notice the phrase. It stirs up anger. It's like taking a it's like taking a stick and, and poking a fire. And as you're poking a fire, you're stoking the coals. That is that's what a a blunt cudgel answer does this is what harsh words do words that are meant to hurt people words that are meant to wound it's like taking a stick and poking those coals and it in flames and there's anger so here we would look at this principle and we say of course the principle is true if i speak kindly and respectfully and thoughtfully and i i don't say anything derogatory or inflammatory in the midst of a tense situation that will de-escalate a situation, right? I mean, the principle is true. But I'm also quick to point out that the book of Proverbs is much more than just a chicken soup for the soul for Christians of just, hey, here's a cool practical tip. We must remember that every single verse is touched by the principle of the fear of the Lord. You cannot properly understand the principles without that underlying principle of I want to honor the Lord. I want to have this reverential respect for the Lord. So this gentle answer is not just, this is a good way just to live with your neighbor. This is a response of, I'm taking God seriously. This is a response of knowing God. This is a response of a wise heart that sees God for who he is. So because I have such great respect for God, because I have such great awe for him, because I see his wisdom in his word, that then is a filter on my mouth to say things that are, that are correct, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love because I realize that it's not the wisest thing to make everyone in the room angry. A wise person does not cause tension. A wise person is always trying to talk about how to live a skillful life, live a Christ-like life. I was thinking about Jesus, Jesus was a master at giving gentle answers with the right attitude, the right time. And there's numerous examples we could point to. But the one that I thought of that was just a great answer, remember when the Herodians came and they said, hey, should we pay taxes or not? And they were trying to trap him, right? You pay taxes, well, then he gets all the Jews upset because he's not honoring the Lord. He's paying taxes to a, to a Roman Caesar, and if he says, don't pay taxes, well, then all the Herodians will say, look, he's, he, he's, he's preaching insurrection. He's preaching rebellion. Don't pay your taxes. So it's like this perfect trap. They, they thought they set this perfect trap for Jesus. And Jesus's answer was very calm, very calculated, perfect. It was perfect. It was the perfect answer. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to Lord what is the Lord's. That is, that is an example of of a gentle answer in a tense situation that uses wisdom. It was a wise answer. And that's, that's the picture here. So be careful what you say, right? We should be very careful what we say. And what we say should be controlled, not full hot passion, but controlled. And that control comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now notice verse 2. In this idea of being careful what you say. Verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. But the mouth of the fools spouts folly. So here, obviously, the phrase for the tongue refers to the words that are said, but probably greater speech patterns, right? The speech patterns of the wise. And here, the speech patterns of the wise and the things that wise people say... They make knowledge acceptable. And this word knowledge, as I've pointed out numerous times in this study, and as I think all of you would agree, knowledge here is not just referring to content. I don't think that's really what Solomon's concerned about. There's not some great test at the end that you just have to regurgitate content. Here, knowledge would refer to knowing God and those things which promote the knowledge of God. Those things which promote knowing God's character and knowing his will. So a wise man, the way he talks, he talks about knowing God, talks about knowing God's character and knowing God's will. He, he talks in such a way that he makes knowledge acceptable. Now this word acceptable is, uh, <laughs> we could say it, it has something to do with making it attractive. It, it's a well thought out way of saying something it's it's something well put the proverbs themselves are an example of this the we, we could say with solomon the pen of the wise makes knowledge acceptable as you think about some of these images that we've been looking at through the book of proverbs through our study we can see how these statements are nicely put together they are thoughtful when you listen to them you go yeah That's something easily to remember. They're attractive. They don't set somebody off. We look at those and go, this is the way that we're supposed to live. So Solomon himself is exemplifying what this looks like. But let's be honest, friends. As believers, we should all strive to have this kind of speech. We should all strive to talk in such a wise way of using the right words at the right time, with the right motivations, with the right attitudes. And we should say it In such a thoughtful way that when people hear it, they go, that's good. That's attractive. But notice what the fool does. The fool does not think about the things that he says. The fool, notice what it says. It says, the mouth of fools spout folly. Now, I'm not trying to be gross this morning. But I did find it interesting that the word for spout here, where the fool spouts folly is also translated as the word belch. And what an image. When you think about the two opposite, somebody who is well-thought, refined, attractive, is the complete opposite of the person who belches, right? And think about those two different types of communication. One, you just go, I don't want it." why would you do that? That's incredibly rude to do. The other one, you go, yeah, no, I want to listen more to what you have to say. So the fool is, is one who just spouts. He just, it just It's just this guttural reaction to something. And when he spouts off, notice what he's doing. He's spouting off folly. Well, if folly is the opposite of knowledge, well, then it would be the things that they're promoting are opposite of God. The things that they're promoting is to walk away from God. It, it's to think of the world without thinking of who God is and of his wisdom and of his word. That's what folly is. And so the fool, he is consumed with this, and all of the things that he says are not full of knowledge of how to get closer to the Lord. They're not full with knowledge of his word. They are full of things that want to pull you away from the Lord, attitudes which you're not supposed to have. In thinking of this, I think we as believers should all strive to speak wisely, but we have all spoken in a way that was not the most eloquent or wise. Many of us had bad table manners from time to time, and we said very foolish things that didn't lead people to the Lord, that didn't make the message of the gospel more attractive, but rather detracted from it. I'm sure we've all been in the room with somebody who started to talk, and you had the feeling, I agree with the content of what was said, but disagree with how it was said. That was not the right way to say that. That was not an attractive way of saying that. That was a very brutal, mean way of saying that. As, as wise people, you realize, look, The things that I say need to be thought out. They need to be attractive. They need need to talk about truth, truthfully, and in a way that people go, yeah, I want that. I want that. I I, I want that thing that you have because of the way that you talk about it. It's thought out. It's not flippant. So be careful how you talk. In verse 1, we see that it's self-controlled. In verse 2, we see that it's thought out. And then verse 3 comes in and in many ways, it seems a little bit out of place, especially when you consider verse 4. I'm going to skip verse 3 just to read verse 4. It says, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. And so you would go, okay, well, verses 1, 2, and 4 talk about speech. And then it's interjected, verse 3. Notice verse 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good you would say, well, that seems a little out of place. And this would be one of those passages that put people would point to to say, well, see, look, the book of Proverbs is just a collection of phrases thrown together with no pre-thought of any type of flow. And some sections of the book of Proverbs, as we will see later on, will have that, that type of uh, that sense, right? you be talking about a whole bunch of different stuff, and, and there really seems to be no connection. But here it's interesting that there seems to be a connection between verse 2 and verse 3 and between verse 3 and verse 4. And the sense would be that a wise person understands truth. He understands correct theology. He knows God and he knows the character of God. And so as he speaks, he is not only mindful of the things he's saying, but he is mindful of the theological implications. And the theological implication is... That God sees everything. It's not like a Christian cuss jar or bad word jar, you know, where you say a bad word and you throw a dollar in as a way to kind of stop you from saying bad words. That's not what this is meant to be. This is meant to give you an understanding of the wise. This is a portrait of a wise person. A wise person answers this way. A wise person talks this way. A wise person thinks this way and Thinks this way while he's talking. Verse 3 is incredible. And it was really my intention to, to, to cover quite a few verses. But when I got to verse 3, I said, Oh, there's too much here. So you'll just have to forgive me. I just made my rest of my sermon a rabbit trail. So we're just going to do that. Okay, We're going to look at this verse and we're going to spend quite a bit of time in it. I love the image here. The eyes of the Lord. Now, first of all, we need to remember when we're thinking about the Lord, the Lord does not have a body. God is spirit, right? John 4 tells us that. God is spirit. So when here, when Solomon says the eyes of the Lord, obviously he's using a metaphor to refer to the nature of God. He's not saying that God literally has eyes everywhere, but it speaks to the attentiveness of, of God in every place. So think about your eyes and think about this image. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Has the idea of scrutiny, has the idea of watching, has the idea of seeing everything, observing. But it's it's not just a casual look. It's not a glance. It's not like there's a whole bunch of surveillance cameras and he's, he's looking at a TV screen of all these surveillance cameras, and he looks at this one, 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 and we say he has eyes everywhere, and he just glances from one to another. The sense here is that his observations, his intentions, his scrutiny is in all places simultaneously. He is seeing everything, the minute details, simultaneously in all space. That's the sense. We would call this, the, the big theological word would be God's omnipresence, that he is present everywhere. And when we talk about God's omnipresence, that's what we're, we're, we're talking about how God is in every place. His whole being is in every place. Now, this is a difficult concept for us to think about because we can only be at one place at a time there's never been a time where I've been in two places simultaneously. Maybe the closest was when I was at that one place at New Mexico and Arizona and Colorado where I was in four states at once. I was in multiple places at once. But that that doesn't really work for this. People have tried to come up with illustrations that had the strange taste of heresy about them. So, let's not try to do that let me just tell you this is what i what the bible teaches about the omnipresence of god that god is everywhere his full being is everywhere that he can exercise full attention at every spot in the universe simultaneously he can exert the fullness of his power in every place simultaneously and not the same he can he can temper it to different situations He knows everything that's going on... ...can simultaneously exert the fullness of his power... ...for all eternity... ...in every single space in the cosmos. I don't know an illustration... (laughs) ...or any other way to make that sound... ...any less confusing than what that is. But this is the God that we worship. And for us... ...for a biblical believer it would be absolutely insane to say that there is a place in the cosmos that is deprived of the presence of God. This is how we think. This is is a fundamental principle of the character of God that we see and and that we think about and that brings us comfort. So the eyes of the Lord are in every place. But there's more. Notice, he he kind of bears down on this because he says, watching He's observing. He's observing. And it says the evil and the good. And we could easily say the evil one and the good one. So not only is he watching and observing, but he's making judgment calls. He alone is the one who can judge who is evil and who is good. And he is the one who is scrutinizing each person in each place simultaneously all around the world. Now, there's a lot of passages that we could go to that talk about this idea of God's omnipresence. By the way, there's another really big theological word that we throw around when we're talking about this subject. It's God's imminence. And we talk about God's infinitude. And basically, when we talk about God's infinitude, we're talking about how he transcends spatial limits because he himself has no spatial limits. He was before the creation of material. We also talk about his eminence and the fact that he is close by. He's here. Just think of Jeremiah 23, 23, when Jeremiah, where God says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can man hide himself in a hiding place so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? So in that, he he demonstrates that he fills. He is so infinite that the whole cosmos is filled with him. And that that filling is not just that he takes up the space of, like air takes up the space of an empty cup. No, it, it has this idea of very close attention, very close observation. The fullness of his being is in every, every speck of space. But he... But it also speaks of that he's close. This verse also speaks of something else that we as Christians that we think about as we're thinking about biblical theology and the character of God. We believe in a God who is right here, the God who's close by. We believe in a God that's with us, that takes care of us. He's eminent. He's right here. That's incredible. That's an incredible comfort. We also believe in a God who is transcendent. He is above us. He is far more powerful than us. And a biblical view of God sees those equally. He is transcendent, way big up there. And he is imminent, really close right here. If I may say, I feel that many people in the church are losing the sense of God's transcendence and his eminence. And when you overemphasize one and de-emphasize the other, that leads you into some really serious, serious theological errors and practical errors. We need to hold both of those thoughts. God is sovereign, control, holy. He is the God of great power, but he's also the God that cares enough and is close by and helps us. There's another passage we could go to, probably the most famous in, in all of this discussion of the omnipresence of God. It's found in Psalm 139, verse 7, the 139th Psalm. By the way, if you get bored this afternoon and you wanted to fill your mind with great thoughts of God and contemplate the character of God, Psalm 139 is a great psalm to spend the afternoon away, just thinking away of the character of God, and meditating on him. And just for the sake of time, let's just start in verse 7. Here here David says, where can I go from your spirit? And the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere. Nowhere can you go. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you're there meaning the sky, if I, if I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, in a hole in the ground, you're there. If I take the wings of, a, of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. The darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day darkness and light are alike to you so think about David as he's thinking about the character of God he he says I can't flee from your presence everywhere I go you are there because you are omnipresent if, if I go to the craziest place I can think of the place where no other human has ever been God's there he's already there he's present in every place in the cosmos And then he he even makes this comment of, yeah, even if I'm in the darkest of dark and I can't see what's going on, that is not an obstacle for the Lord. Darkness is not an obstacle for him. Space is not an obstacle for him. The things that we can't see, he can see perfectly. It's an incredible text. It's an incredible text. There's another text that I think of when I think of this. It's found in Genesis 16. It's where... uh, hagar when she when she is cast out from sarai and you have that really difficult situation that abraham created between his two wives and one is kicked out and and hagar goes out and god the angel of the lord sees her and and what does she say she says you are the god who sees you are the god who is everywhere you see you see everything because you are everywhere now, some of you who are thinking, and you're going, okay, well, that all sounds good, but what do you do about that passage in 2 Thessalonians 1.9? I know that was on everybody's mind, so let's go there. What do you do with uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.9? Seems like here Paul says there's one place you can go where you can flee the presence of God. 2 Thessalonians 1 9. He says, These, those who disobey the gospel, will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So some of you go, See? I guess there's one place where God's not, in hell. I would say here, first of all, theologically speaking, there is a place there is no place deprived from God's presence. And here, I think Paul is using a slightly different concept of the word presence than what we're thinking. When we're thinking of omnipresence of God's fullness of being, being everywhere, that's one thing. Here, as Paul's talking about presence, it's very clear that this is the penalty of eternal destruction. And numerous places in the New Testament and the Old Testament refers to this special presence of God, of God's favor towards one, right? So when God... When it says that God dwells in Israel because he's pleased to be there, it doesn't mean that God is only in Israel and then, and then therefore is no longer anywhere else in the cosmos. It speaks of his special presence, of his special relationship that he has with his special people. So the presence, this presence language, could speak of God's favor and a good relationship with so here, in this passage, when I see this word presence, it's not speaking of God is somehow absent from this one place, but rather that there is no saving relationship for anyone in there. They are suffering eternal destruction and death. They are not in God's favor. In fact, they are experiencing what? The wrath of God. It is God who is pouring out his wrath on them in that place. And so they do not have the right kind of relationship with him. And that's how I understand this phrase. Which, as a believer, isn't that incredible? That the Holy Spirit indwells us and that there is this special presence? I mean, God's omnipresent, and there's really no place you can go where God is not. But for the believer, there's something special. There's a special relationship that that we have with the Lord. And there's this special presence that he has with us, this special favor that he shows us, this grace that he shows us, this empowerment that he shows us. It really, really makes me angry and sad when I hear believers who who make really foolish comments, and this is happening more and more as I listen, of people who they either directly come out and say it or insinuate it that the worship service is a time for people to come and meet with God. And that there has to be a certain condition and mood set in order for us to experience the presence of God. One guy told me that their church is called the Experience Room so they can experience the presence of God. And immediately I laugh because I go, you don't understand God. God is everywhere, and if you only experience him in one place, uh uh-oh, that means you don't understand that he is everywhere at all times. But there's a part of me that gets mad, and this is becoming a trend, where man, in his ignorance and in his arrogance, can assume that he can beckon God because he's playing three chords with a synthesizer behind it. And that he can say to God, you come here now. You come to my presence now. The arrogance of man. The stupidity of man. Now, to be honest, we have all had these thoughts. Because we're all sinners. We all have a deficient view of God. And there's numerous times where we beckon God to come to us. Instead of us going to the Lord like how it's supposed to be. That we foolishly say, you come to me. If we understand the omnipresence of God and the sovereignty of God and the holiness of God, the love of God, the wrath of God correctly, we would understand we need to yield to Him. We need to come to Him. We need to say, You are the one that's in charge. Now, back to this passage in Proverbs chapter 15. I think it's easy to make the implication, and I think, it's a, I think it's a safe principle when we get to verse 3 of we should be careful what we say because God is listening. And this would add a great filter and deterrent for us to say really foolish things. And I think verse 3, we could, we could draw that implication from this text, and I think that's a fair implication. God is always listening. God is always watching. He is everywhere. You cannot hide from him. You cannot hide the things you are doing from him. So be careful what you say and be careful what you do because you're never alone. So on the one hand, that's that's a great deterrent. On the other hand, isn't that an incredible comfort? He's here. I'm never alone. And the one the one that's near me is the only one that truly knows me and is the one that can truly Help me. That one is near me. It's an incredible truth. Incredible truth. However, I don't want this this text and this this sermon to be, like I said, just some cheap stop saying bad words in the presence of people who go to church. Because that's not really how I think this text is written. This text is written, as I said, with that under- that presupposition of the fear of the Lord and that I want to honor the Lord and that I take God seriously. And because I take him seriously, he's working on my heart. And because he's working on my heart and I want to offer a life that's Christ-like, it changes the way I talk because there's wisdom there because I know God. So it's not stop talking and then work backwards. It's start on the heart. And if you start working on the heart, And as the heart is being changed and transformed by the power of Christ and by the power of the Spirit and by the power of the Word, then the language will change. And these are the types of things that will be said in the way that they will be said because of the influence of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, how do we get there? Well, I would like to draw your attention to a passage we've studied already, to Proverbs chapter 2. Let's go back to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. This is my father's favorite verse, favorite passage in the scriptures. Maybe other than Second Timothy four two, and if if there was ever to be a family a family, uh, a family uh, motto or or a, a family uh, crest, right? A family crest of the Hilberts. I guarantee you Proverbs two one through six would be on there, and Second Timothy two four would be on there. Uh, these passages have. This passage particularly has helped my dad, and, and, and he, he uh, th- this passage radically changed his life as he meditated on this as a young man. And he passed this on to us as kids. This was a passage that he always pointed back to. This is almost tattooed on the inside of my eyelids. I read it when I'm asleep. It's always there. It's always talking to me, right? Great text, though. Proverbs 2, 1. My son... If you receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, if you make your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, if you cry for discernment and lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as in hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Here Solomon gives us the blueprint of how to become wise. It starts with receiving and treasuring and listening to God's word. You have to spend time in the Word. This is the tool that God uses to change the heart. As the Spirit's working on the heart of the believer, it's the words of Scripture that is removing that stony ground, that's removing all of that hard clay. It's removing all of that. It's the thing that's shaping us. And so it's fundamental that wisdom starts from God's word, that it starts with the reception of God's word, receiving it as God's word. It it starts with treasuring this book as the most valuable, and the contents that are found in here are the most valuable. And it starts with, I need to listen to everything that this book says. If I don't know something outside of this book, who cares but woe be to me if I don't know what this book says. If I don't know what God requires of me. That's the heart of wisdom. And it starts here with the word. And then notice that prayer is involved. In verse 3, crying out for discernment and lifting your voice for understanding. This is much more than just a casual, hey God, could you make me smarter? Hey God, I would like a couple other letters after my name. This is a heartfelt desire a passionate plea, God, I don't know. I don't know. But you do. Teach me. Teach me the truth. Teach me wisdom. Give me discernment. So it starts with going into God's word, digging into God's word, asking God, who's the author of the book, to help you understand the book and apply the book. And then notice verse 4, and then to continue to seek it. It's easy to dig in once a week. It's easy to dig in once a, once a month or once a year. It's easy to cry out one time for discernment and wisdom. But Solomon says this is an ongoing ask. This is an ongoing seeking. This is an ongoing search. You, you don't stop. You continue. You continue. You continue. And this is the process of how one becomes wise. As the Holy Spirit works on a person's heart, it's the word that does this. It's prayer. It's continually seeking the face of God and continually seeking his word. So we should be wise and we should be careful in what we say. We need to be wise in the way that we think about God, the wise in the way that we think about theology. But we need to be spending time in God's word. We need to be spending time in prayer. We need to be spending time continually searching not being satisfied, but continue to search. And it's from this that our hearts will become wise. And as we become wise, and we become wiser and wiser, more like Jesus Christ, our life will be transformed. And one of those things that will be transformed is our tongue as well. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's go ahead and let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that are found in it. We thank you that you do give wisdom and we do thank you that you have revealed to us that you are everywhere at all times and that your attention can be at all places on everything simultaneously for all eternity and that you've revealed this to us and that we know this truth to know that we are never alone, to know that you are watching us and so when we do what is right, we can take encouragement saying, at least the Lord knows knowing that you are the judge. We pray, Father, uh, for hearts of wisdom and lives that are full of wisdom. Once again, we are very thankful for fathers, godly fathers, who show their children the way of righteousness. We are very thankful for father-like figures, even in this room, who teach the truth and exemplify the truth. And their encouragement to me as a young father on how to present a life that's pleasing to you, We just pray for just a good day with family and that we would honor both our father and mother. But we thank you for today of just specifically thinking of our earthly fathers that you've blessed us with. We thank you and love you for everything you've given us in your son's name. Amen.